0: If you have your Bibles with you this morning, and you would, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 3. We're in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 this morning. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And we're going to go ahead and we're going to begin reading that, starting in verse 1. Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. He told the man with a shriveled hand, Stand before us. Then he said to them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts and told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians to kill him, or against him how they might kill him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time we have to gather to look at your word, to read it, to see what it says to our lives, to see what truth we can learn about you and what we can see about ourselves. God, I pray that today as we look at at this story of the man who was healed by Jesus, I pray that you will help us to see our lives, to to see what we need to do and how we can respond in accordance to what we've read and what we, we are looking at today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So in this story... We have, uh, we have a few things going on. We, we started last week in Mark, and, and as Jesus is beginning his ministry, he has uh, amassed a crowd, and, and people are following him. The Pharisees have taken notice, the scribes and the Pharisees. They're starting to notice what he's doing, following him around, seeing what, what is going on. They ask him, well, why don't your disciples fast the way other, other people fast? He said, and he answers them and gives his answer about, you don't, you don't, uh, you don't mourn while the bridegroom is there. You, you do it while he is gone. And then we see the this question about the Sabbath where his his um, disciples are picking grain as they go through the fields. And he says that at the end of it that he is the Lord. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And that is where we find ourselves leading into this passage. He's already been interacting with the Pharisees. He's already been interacting with people. And that is who is here. There are three people. In this story, there are three groups of people. One of them is a group of people. There's Jesus, the Pharisees, and the man with the shriveled hand. And that's who we are interacting with in this story. And we're going to look at each one of them and the way they're interacting in this story. And and ultimately, today's sermon is titled, The Heart of God. And we will see the heart of each of these people and how it relates to the heart of of God, but so first we will look at the man with the shriveled hand. And this is a man that is brokenhearted. He has affliction. He has things he's struggling with, and he's in need of love and aid. We've all had times in our life where we felt hopeless. We felt in need. We needed others to do things to help us in ways that we could not help ourselves. You know, this past week I, we've been moving up here. We Spent our first night in our new home last night. Uh, yesterday was a very busy day indeed, and the whole week prior as well. And, and to pass time as I've been driving back and forth, and while I was doing some painting and things of that nature, I've been listening to the audiobook book of uh, Sherlock Holmes. I think they're public domain now, so it's free. You can find it on Spotify. And there's been all sorts of just interesting stories to pass the time. But Sherlock Holmes is the person they turn to when they are in the state this man is. When, they, when they've tried everything else they could do, they've, they've gone to the police, they've tried to figure it out themselves, they go to Sherlock Holmes because he can help them in ways that others cannot. And so we see this man has a withered hand. He has a problem that he cannot fix. Well, how did he get here? Unlike some accounts, this story does not tell us exactly how he came to be in this position. It doesn't indicate whether he had been born with this shriveled hand or whether it was a result of an injury. Though the description of the, shrivel, the shriveled hand in some translations or, or the withered hand may indicate that it was a birth defect. And again, what motivates this man is not extremely clear. He is not, as some were, a person that was approaching Jesus himself to find healing. He just happened to be in the synagogue when Jesus was there. But he was willing to be made well. And it seems to indicate that he wanted to be healed. He wanted to be made well. But the reality that this man found himself in is that he was completely unable to solve the situation on his own. What could this man do to heal himself? Nothing. It was only by the grace of God that he was able to be healed. Christ was this man's savior in the sense of relieving him from a specific ailment in his life. And I think what we need to understand as we look at this man in the story is that we are all in the state of this man. We are all separated from God and struggling with an ailment that we cannot cure ourselves. And that ailment is sin. Sin. Sin separates all people from God, and and just like this man is helpless, standing there of his own, wishing he could be well, we are all in a similar situation without Christ. We have no hope of producing anything within ourselves that might lead to salvation. As we note from this man's healing, this man's healing resulted and rested entirely on the grace of God, Without Jesus' desire to work in this situation, this man would not have been healed. He could not endeavor to compel Christ to heal him. It is only because Christ chose and freely gave this healing to this man that he was able to be healed. It is entirely a work of God. He did nothing in this process to, to bring about his healing. He did nothing to merit Christ's action. It doesn't say that he was a moral man. It doesn't say really anything about this man because I think as we'll see later that this story is not as much about this man as it is those who are watching. But he didn't, it doesn't say whether he was good or bad, whether he was asking for it or whether he was there by a chance, but he was healed. He was able to enjoy the benefits of Christ's work without doing anything to deserve it or anything to receive it. And in seeing this, we must remember the grace of God that God has shown in saving us, the grace and love that God had for us, that he loved us first while we were still in rebellion, that Jesus did the work. And as he said on the cross, it is finished. There is nothing that we do to save ourselves. And through Christ, we have eternal life, even though what we deserve is death and destruction and judgment. And so, at first, we see this man, the broken-hearted man, as we all are—broken-hearted, separated, worn down by this life, struggling with sin. He is struggling with his affliction, but he is not the only person here. Watching, observing everything that is taking place, are the Pharisees, and they are a people with a hardened heart, who are in need of rebuke and correction. No doubt you have encountered people in your life who have come against you and made things difficult. It may be as simple as someone that you care about or love in your family just giving you a hard time. Maybe your siblings as you, as you grew up. Sometimes maybe your spouse. That doesn't ever happen right. You never have any disagreements with your spouse or, or those you love. And sometimes it's maybe far more severe. A boss at work, a, a person that has power over you that, that simply will not let you do things or, or will not let anything slip by. I'm reminded in, in this story of the hardness of the hearts that these men had, the Pharisees had, of the story of Pharaoh and the people of Israel as Moses comes to, to set the people free, and now the Bible says that he, his heart was hardened, and he refused to let the people go until great plagues finally changed his mind. When the Pharisees saw the man with the withered hand, what does the Bible say their very first thought was? So they entered the synagogue, and there was a man with a shriveled hand. Verse 2, the very first thing he says, in order to accuse him, they watched him closely to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. How sad of a state. How sad of a place to be when seeing a man that needs healing and being in the presence of one who can heal, your first thought is, now we have an opportunity to accuse him, to find fault. They were accusatory from the start. Why were they doing this? Why did they have this hardness of heart? Why did they have this this maliciousness towards Jesus? I think looking back to some of the the previous um, events of this chapter and of, of, of the book of Mark can explain a little bit of their attitude towards Jesus. Starting in Mark 2, they question the way he speaks and he makes them look foolish. When there was a paralytic that was brought to him in the, the very beginning of chapter 2, the first thing Jesus said to him was, your sins are forgiven. They said, who has authority to forgive sins but God alone? And, and he says, well, so that you'll see that I have that authority, get up and walk. And he does. Now, how do you think they probably felt about that? These are the religious leaders, those who had authority, those who these people look to for all of their problems. And here is this man, Jesus, who is telling them and, and, and showing them up and healing people and, and pointing out their wrongness in front of them and in front of others. They hated him because they had pride. They weren't concerned with what God was doing. They were concerned with their status. They were concerned with the authority and the power they had. And when the authority, the very authority of God was present, they did not submit to it, but were rather concerned that someone else was going to get the attention and authority that they had gained. And so when they see a man that needed healing, they did not look to him, and look to Jesus and celebrate that he could heal, but they looked for an opportunity to accuse him. Their pride would not allow them to see the one who is clearly doing the work of God among them. What we understand is that this is a legalistic heart that they had, because the way they were going to accuse him was that he might heal on the Sabbath. Right, so what is the Sabbath? It's the idea that you work for six days, and on the seventh day, you rest. Just as God created in six days, and on the seventh, he rested. It's one of the commandments. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And so these men were pertaining to be following God's law, but in doing so, were missing the very point of it. They were being legalistic. It's a word that we've heard often, but what does it mean to be legalistic. What is legalism? Legalism is enforcing an imperfect law as though it is the law of God. Okay, so enforcing an imperfect law as though it is a perfect law of God. It's taking something that shouldn't be in a certain place, in a place of high esteem, and placing it there. And I think there is a close tie between legalism and idolatry. Placing something in a place it should not be, and it runs the danger of replacing God as what we are worshiping and looking after. This means that something is being enforced that should not be enforced in that that way. So I have some examples I want you to to look at as we're going through this. The first thing you're going to see is is a graphic that shows uh, what a lot of the Pharisees would do with the law of God. In the middle, you see the law. This is the commandment. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But they would place rules, fences, fences around the law. This happened very early in Scripture. Think about the story of the fall, right? Adam and Eve were in the garden. They had one rule, one law. Eat from any tree, but not from the tree in the center of the garden. Don't eat it the serpent comes to Eve and says, did God really say not to eat of the tree in the garden, in the center of the garden? She says, we cannot eat it or even touch it or else we'll die. She placed a fence around the law. God said, do not eat the food. She said, don't eat or touch it. Now these things can provide a good place in our lives. If you know that you have a temptation towards the law. Placing a fence around it can be good, right? So if you know that you're tempted in a certain way, if, you, if you're around a certain group of people or you're in a certain place, you might know, maybe I shouldn't go to that place because if I go there, I might be tempted in a way that I can't bear, right? We know that sometimes it's good to, to place extra restrictions upon ourselves or, or to place extra restrictions around maybe our children, we, we literally put up gates last night to make sure the kids don't fall down the stairs. It's not that the stairs are bad, but it's the result of what could happen if they were going down the stairs in a way they couldn't handle. So fences and gates aren't always bad, but what becomes bad is when we enforce those upon others as though that is the law itself. That is what legalism is. So the Pharisees in regards to the Sabbath had created all these specific instances. Of, well, you cannot do this on the Sabbath. You cannot do this on the Sabbath. Now, I don't think they would probably ever encountered anybody that was going to be healing on the Sabbath, but they had decided that that was work. That was breaking the Sabbath in their mind. But we have the temptation of legalism today as well. We need to look at what ways we must be wary of being legalistic in our lives. One great thing that we have in, in, in church and, and in our lives in general are, are traditions, right? Every year when it, it's coming up soon, Christmas time, what do we do? We, we have certain family houses we go to. We have decorations we put up, and there's traditions that we enjoy. Traditions are good, They can serve a purpose. They help us to remember and to know and to enjoy things. But what happens when a tradition takes a place it should not be? What happens when a tradition becomes and is enforced as law? It's a very dangerous thing. Tradition can be good. We think about the early church. Many people couldn't read. And so you had things like creeds and and things like that that were put in place so people could remember and and know and have the, the word of God more accessible. And they would do things a certain way to make sure they didn't mess it up. But what happens when those traditions take a place they shouldn't have? What happens when something that is more faithful to God comes along that threatens the tradition but would be more likely to uphold what God would call us to do? I have another example, another another slide I want you to look at. It's called the concentric circles of theology. I think this is a very good way for us to understand the right place of things in our life. Now, I'll explain it to you. It's not complicated at all. In the middle, what is most important? Jesus, the person of Jesus. And outside of that, we see dogma. Dogma are the essential beliefs of the faith. Dogma is what will determine whether or not someone is actually a Christian. All right? You know, Jesus as Lord and Savior, dying on the cross, rising from the grave, one God. Now, if someone comes and and they say, well, I believe in a different God, that's departing from the essential beliefs of the Christian faith. When we look at a group of of people that have, have changed their beliefs and we would label them a cult, That is when they have changed the essential dogmas of the Christian faith. Then you have doctrine. These are beliefs that we get from Scripture, things that we understand to be important and true, but at times there is disagreement about their implementation. There are many churches that disagree on things like baptism and and different aspects of, of things in the church that may not have led to a departure from Christian faith, but are something that separate the different distinct groups. So there's doctrines. And then we have opinions. I think those are often the most dangerous. They have no scriptural basis, no real grounding or place in the the Bible. They're the things we choose. When do we worship God? What time? What's the order of the service? Is the piano going to be on this side or on that side? When legalism happens is when these things are enforced in ways that they ought not be. When you treat opinions like they are doctrines or dogmas, that is legalism. When you treat doctrine like it is a dogma, that is legalism. And when you love a dogma more than you love Christ himself, that too is legalism. We must make sure that we are pursuing Christ and who he is, and not the things we think we know. And in today's world, legalism also means imposing the law as a means of salvation. Looking to people to to, to perfectly follow the law of God in order to be saved. The reality is, when we have trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior, when we have followed Him, when we have accepted the free gift that He gives, we are not under the law but under grace. This is what Romans 7 tells us. We are saved by grace through faith. Romans 7 says that the law is how we know what sin is. Okay? So so in this example, he says, "How would I known what it was to covet unless the, the law had told me not to covet? right? It's like if your child goes and writes on the wall, how are they supposed to know that's wrong unless you tell them not to write on the wall? And so the law itself is good. The law of God is good and perfect and true, but it has a very difficult effect for us. It exposes us for who we are. It exposes us as the sinners that we are because we are all sinful people in need of a savior. The law has told us countless times, these are the things that God expects you to do. And no doubt you can think in your mind of the many, many ways that you have fallen short and failed God in your life. And so the law, though it is good for the sinner, is dreadful because it brings condemnation. And grace is the glorious way in which God saves the undeserving, incapable sinner, simply because he is good and he loves them and gave Christ as the sacrifice for sin. We must remember that grace is how we've been saved and seek to apply that in our lives. And if we were to ever look to a person and say, well, because you don't do this or because you are, or have fallen in this way or you struggle in this way, you're not saved. Remember what Jesus said about that to, Take the plank out of our own eye before we take the speck out of our brothers. We ought to do that because salvation is through faith in Christ because of grace. We must see the way in which we've been dealt. And so finally, we get to Jesus, the last person that's involved in this encounter. And through him, we see the heart of God. He is perfect in love and in truth. You know, in this world, people constantly misunderstand, misrepresent, and miss exactly who God is. I want you to think for a moment in your mind. You can close your eyes, keep them over. Whatever helps you visualize better. I want you to imagine God. Who is God? What comes to your mind? For many, it is the idea of a an older man sitting on a throne, right? Like a grandfatherly type figure. It's hard to imagine who God is and, and whatever we will come up with within our mind is imperfect and, fall, and it is, it is a failure of who God is. Think about the way that you have heard God explained and represented in the world. You know, I, it's been a common occurrence uh, through, through media, <laughs> in other avenues, to see God described as as only loving, only well, God wouldn't punish people. God would have no ex- expectation of of following Him. He's good, so He would never punish people. And on the other end, there's people who are so legalistic, as we've talked about, that they would never see that God could forgive and love people because, in their mind, they are too far, too far gone. They've done too many terrible things. And there's people who abuse his name for their own advance. Through all these mischaracterizations, all these misunderstandings of who God is, the reality is the, the heart of God and who God is is plain to see in Scripture. When Jesus saw the man with the withered hand, his primary concern was healing him, was caring for him, for, for loving this person that was before him. And so Jesus summoned the man before them and asked these people because he he perceived their hearts. It's kind of scary, isn't it, to know that God knows your innermost thoughts, your innermost desires, your motives. And he says, which is right to do on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil, to save life, or to kill. And they were silent because they knew that they were wrong. Have you ever been in that kind of situation before where you knew you were wrong, but you were too prideful to admit it? I know that the classic trope is, is, on, is on a road trip. It's the man that refuses to stop and ask for directions. Well, I'm going the right way. I don't need to stop and ask for directions. The Pharisees thought they were going the right way. They thought they knew the heart of God. They thought they knew what God desired for them to do. And in front of them, they had the one who would demonstrate perfectly the heart of God. And they're looking to accuse him. It says he, he knew their hearts and he was angry and grieved at how hardened they were. Angry at the, their, their lack of care for this man and, and grieved that they could be in such a state. They had hardened their hearts so much. You see, Jesus was concerned with what actually matters. The question we have to ask is, what is <coughs> the Sabbath actually for? Just before this passage, he had been disputing the Sabbath with the Pharisees. As his disciples walked, they picked grain, and the the Pharisees were alarmed. They asked him why they did this on the Sabbath. We'll go ahead and we'll just read 23 through 28. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, You never read what David and those who were hungry, or who were with him did when he was in need and hungry, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, and also gave some to his companions. Then he told them, the Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So then the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath." You see, the Pharisees approached the Sabbath as though though it was a thing in itself to be worshipped, to be praised, to be held in high esteem. But really, it was a gift of God to man to preserve them, to enrich them, as a way that they could be closer to God, not as a thing to be put in place of God. So Jesus was Lord of the Sabbath, and the Sabbath was not made to be worshipped. Jesus gets at the question of what truly matters. On the Sabbath, this holy day, is it better to do evil or good, to kill or save life? Jesus indicates that the law of God is not prescriptive in the way, is not prescriptive in the way the Pharisees understood it to be. And it is clear that the law of God had a hierarchy within it, some laws being greater than others. This is most obvious when they ask him, what is the greatest commandment Love God with all you are. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The law of God correctly understood would never cause you to violate the greater commandments. You understand that? So so in keeping the Sabbath, they expected Jesus to not heal this man. Well, that wouldn't have been very loving to God or to this man. And so that cannot be what it means to keep the Sabbath. It is not that he is disregarding the Sabbath, but rather that he is following the great commandment and in doing so, keeping the Sabbath. Because the greatest commandment is what he is what if we follow. And Jesus said that if we follow loving God with all we are, loving people with all we are, all the law and the prophets are accomplished in that. And so it's not that he was breaking the law by healing this man, but rather fulfilling it. so this expresses the heart of God. God is the one who put the law into place, and thus the law is good. Following the law of God would never lead us to do wrong. And Jesus loved this man and saw fit to have compassion on him. I think this is similar in a way to where an ambulance, as it is going to the scene of an accident, will likely be going faster than the speed limit. The speed limit is not there to keep emergency services from saving life, but rather to prevent accidents. And so when there is life in danger and emergency services are needed, it is lawful for them to go faster than the speed limit, to get there, to save life rather than to kill, to do good rather than to do evil. In the same way, Jesus saw fit that on the Sabbath, it was good that he performed this miracle. The reality is that God loved this world so much that he sent his son to die for us. Even when he would be perfectly justified in destroying us, judging us, We must seek to imitate Christ in our lives and remember us. Remember this. God operates just as Jesus did in this situation and is moved by compassion and love for people even when he would be justified in judging them. There was no reason that that Jesus had to heal this man, but he did. And the question as we're looking at the heart of God in this is, do we operate with others In this manner, when we look at and see the heart of God as he operated with this man, as he dealt with others in his life, there was grace, there was compassion, there was concern for them. There was truth in what he presented to them. When we think of our lives, if we are Christians and we are called to imitate Christ, are we imitating his heart and how he dealt with people? Do you operate with grace with the people in your life? Are you motivated by the love of God? Or when you come to a situation, are you more concerned with your rights, your desires, or being right than you are loving someone the way that Christ has loved you? Because I'll tell you, there's a lot of times in this life where we may have an argument for the way we feel or the way we desire things to be. But in looking at those around us, are we loving them the way that Christ loved us? I want you to think about the last time you were wronged, when someone hurt you, when someone did something to you, what was your response? For most people, there is indignation there is frustration. Rightly so, right? We, we were wronged. We were hurt. What does the heart of God do in that situation? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I think that is something we cannot ever remember enough We stand today in the rear view looking back at what Christ has done and we can accept it and be thankful that he did it. But we must know that at the time we would have been the ones crying crucify him. It is only by his grace that we've been saved. It's only because of the, the heart that he has, the love with which he loved us first that we even have the opportunity to consider what it means to follow him. Because despite our best efforts, we are like the man with the withered hand. Completely and wholly incapable of healing ourselves. But God loved us so much. He loved the world so much, he sent his son. So that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And if we have been changed by that truth... We cannot deny that that is how we are called to interact with others. If we are ambassadors for Christ, are we being a good ambassador? Are we leading well? I remember that so often when I was in elementary school. We would go on a field trip, and they say, now you are an ambassador of this school. If you do something wrong, they will look at this school, and they won't want us to come back. So you better be good when you go to the zoo. And you felt like the world was at stake. Well, that is true about our faith in Christ. When we go into this world, if, if we are bearing the name Christian, what we do is put on to Christ by the people we interact with. Far be it from us to bring shame upon the name of Christ by being unloving, by being ungraceful. We must be filled with grace, we must be filled with love in how we interact with others. So, the question I ask you today. Where is your heart today? Are you brokenhearted this morning? Are you like the man with the withered hand, battling with difficulties in your life, afflicted by struggles or things outside your control? Or maybe today you're sitting here and you have never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Are you trapped in a life of sin in need of a savior? Come to Jesus In him there is salvation and healing and peace beyond all understanding. Or maybe if you're honest with yourself and it's difficult to do, is there any hardness in your heart? Is there any attitude that reflects anything like the Pharisees to where you have your own desires and your own thoughts or your own legalistic interpretations of what things should be? Do you need to ask Christ to help you see others the way he sees them? To give you the ability to deal with others in the way he has dealt with you? Are you seeking to imitate the heart of God? Let us all make this our aim as we seek to find ways to to make following God the aim of our lives. And as Becky comes, as we have this time of invitation, I want to invite you To consider that, to consider where your heart is. And if this morning you don't have a relationship with Christ, you are like the man that could not heal himself. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much you may try to do, there is nothing you will ever be able to do to heal yourself, to save yourself. And I implore you today to come to Christ, to come to salvation. I'm here you would like to talk or ask questions about what that means or for any prayer you may have in your life. Let us stand and pray together as we prepare this thing. Father, I thank you for this day, for this time you've given us to come and look at your word, and God, I pray that you would convict us in our lives to to be dependent on you, wholly and fully, to lay aside anything in our hearts that would separate us from doing anything but living and loving people. The way you would love God. If there is anyone here, I pray that you would help them to have the boldness and the courage to be faithful in following you, to accepting the free gift of what you have done. The work is finished. It's in Jesus' name we pray.